Thanks for tuning in to this episode of The Conqueror. On today's episode, I talk with Robert Haddad. Robert lives in Sydney, Australia, and holds eight university qualifications in the areas of law, theology, philosophy, and religious education. In addition to his studies, Robert has authored 10 books selling over 40,000 copies, his most popular being Defend the Faith and A Thousand and One Reasons Why It's Great to Be a Catholic. Throughout his working life, Robert has worked at St. Shutterfield's College, the Catholic Chaplaincy at the University of Sydney, the Confraternity of Christian Doctrine and the Catholic Adult Education Centre. He has been presenting talks on the Catholic faith in Australia and overseas since 1996. Currently, he works as the head of new evangelization for the Sydney Catholic Schools Office, and in his capacity has responsibility for staff, faith formation, family educators, and youth ministry. In 2016, he led the largest group of Australian pilgrims to travel to an overseas World Youth Day. Over 650 Catholic students and staff attended. He also currently lectures part-time in apologetics, at the University of Notre Dame in Sydney. Stay tuned for this episode where I talk with Robert about several issues and one very surprising topic that I didn't even expect. Robert's proven to be a man of great character and great faith and also surprisingly, as I've just gotten to know him well, a man of great courage. My name is Robert Haddad. I work for Sydney Catholic Schools Office. I'm head of new evangelization. Thanks for taking time to meet with me. Oh, it's great. Thanks, Paul. Good to meet you. Yeah, Good to likewise. see you face to face. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you very much. Um, no doubt there's a lot of people out there who've come across your work and um, who hold it in high regard. Who hold it in high what regard. Do you think, uh, what do you think um, makes your work so special? I've always seen my work as actually working for God. That's what makes it special. Mm. I, I'm a teacher, but I always think, yeah, I'm teaching students about God, about Jesus Christ, about the Catholic Church and Catholic teaching. And the point of all that is to get students to know the truth and to love the truth and to live the truth. That's why it's special. It's all about having people, uh, forming them in relationship with God. I see. And do you feel that your work has been done in a unique way compared to other people who have been in a similar role to you? I've always done my work in my particular way. And when I started, I started back 30 years ago. I started in a school in Punchbowl, St. Charles College, mm -hmm. which was very primitive. And I say that in a nice way, with a lot of respect and love, because I've always loved St. Charles. Spent 15 of the best years of my life there. I didn't follow the norm, I'll be very honest with you. I did things my own way, because uh, I didn't have any formal qualifications or training or experience as a teacher before I became a teacher. Basically, what I thought is that kids just need to be told the truth. If there was any rule book that said, look, don't be black and white, don't be chalk and talk, don't be teacher-centered, don't talk about the devil or hell or sin or whatever. Look, I threw all those rule books out. I just thought, look, those rules are going to get in the way of teaching the truth and making things clear, simple for young people. So it's always been my endeavor when I teach to tell it as it is. I mean, of course, you've got to get the focus right and it's got to be about the positive. It's got to be about let's get to know God, love God and serve God. It's not about the negatives like the devil or hell or sin, but they have to be mentioned somewhere. So I did things, I did a lot of things in my teaching years at St. Charles that would have got me into a bit of strife in other institutions. But uh, I look back in hindsight and I have no regrets about that because feedback I get from kids that I taught decades ago was that they 
thank me for having had taught them in, in such a clear and strong manner because you lay the foundations in the minds of young people. They know there's something real, there's something good, true and beautiful that's clear for them to come back to. If once they leave school and they might stray a bit, they know what's right and wrong when they're straying and they come back to what's right eventually. And that can only happen if you're actually teaching very strong and very clear from the first place, in the first instance. So that's been my style, and it's rather unconventional compared to most educators. But again, I don't make any apologies for that. Do you, would it be fair to say then that your teaching style is a result of your personal bravery? Oh, look, it's about... I wouldn't say bravery. I'm like everyone else. I have a certain level of bravery and a certain lack of bravery. I My teaching style reflects my personality. This is what I wanted. As a Catholic, what did I want to be? I wanted clear teaching. I wanted clear answers. I wanted scripture. I wanted church fathers. I want the answers to questions. So that was me personally. For my own experience growing up, especially from the age of 15 to my early 20s, when I wanted answers and I struggled to find answers, when I eventually found them, I was very excited. So when I became a teacher, I wanted the young people to be able to receive the truth and the answers that I earned for many years. So my teaching style reflected my own personality and my own experiences. Okay. And do you feel that your experiences to date have, the way that they've brushed onto students in a positive way, do you feel that the responses you've been getting from those students from many years ago has been that their faith has deepened beyond their experiences with you? Or do you feel that you took them to a certain height and that's where they've stayed since then? Well, look, I taught over a thousand students and I left St. Charles, you know, nearly 15 years ago. So I can only have some limited knowledge about uh, how some of these ex-students have travelled in their spiritual life since leaving school. But the interesting thing, the consistent feedback I get, and I'm having another lunch meeting with an ex-student just next week, is that except for one student, Every student I've encountered in the years since I left school thanks me for having taught them what I taught them. And I'm very honoured by that and I have to receive that humbly and I thank God that I had such a positive impact on young people. I did get one hostile response and this is an interesting story. There's a student from the class of 1997 who, you know, made it very clear to me that he disagreed with my teachings about premarital sex and contraception and things like that. And um, he left school and did what he did what you'll do for the next 20 years. I re-encountered him again a couple of years ago, 20 years after he left school. And this student, who was the only one who ever had a go at me for what I taught in school, had a great conversion experience just very recently and then thanked me for having taught what I taught. And I was so pleased to hear that for his own sake. He's married, he's got kids, he went through difficulties, there were issues with mental health and etc. And he found his faith again through friends and the example of a good holy priest. And he could see why I taught back 20 years earlier. Another experience I had with some female students was that I had a, a set of twins at St. Charles that I taught who were always very negative and oppositional in the classroom. And eventually they left the school only in year eight and they went off to another girl, an all girls school somewhere in the inner west of Sydney. And this story was related to me years after they left. One day I'm walking through Bankstown Square and a friend of these twins was in a delicatessen 
serving customers and she saw me and she called me over to the counter and we got talking. And this student said to me, you know, Miss Haddad, when you used to teach us at school and you used to talk about morality and marriage and family and sexuality, we always disagreed with you and we always deliberately fought you in the classroom. But when we went to this other school and we were taught by a nun and this nun began to teach us that it was okay to have sex before marriage and all that, we knew instinctively that she was wrong and we turned our guns on her. So we're now at St. Charles, they turned their guns on me, but they got what was true. And when they went to this other school, they weren't getting the truth. They turned their guns on that particular religious sister. And that's the value of teaching the truth, even though you might have opposition in the classroom or elsewhere. And I won't say it's because I'm courageous. I just say, I just knew what I had to do. And I thank God that I just would do. And I had the freedom to do what I did because I was in a school, St. Charles College, where I had that freedom. And I can tell you now, most other Orthodox Catholics in these years, in the 90s, if they were elsewhere, wouldn't have had that freedom to teach so clearly. Do you feel that your experiences prior to gaining formal training and formal qualifications still influence the way you do things now? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I would say I I taught for 12 years before I got my first teaching qualification, which was a graduate diploma in education. I think those 12 years were my best teaching years. I learned things through my formal studies, there's no doubt about it. And I'm so glad to have acquired formal qualifications because in the eyes of many, you you have no credibility unless you've got those pieces of paper, those degrees, etc. But they did not form me as a teacher. I, again, I had my best years as a teacher before I got any piece of paper saying I was qualified. I think my teaching style was just formed again by my personality and what I wanted the kids to learn. Do you feel that your qualifications and formal training as such, for lack of a better word, bound you? Because you mentioned that you had your best years prior to your formal training. And I'd imagine that that was the case because you had a level of creativity. Yes, yes. Would you agree with that? Spontaneity. Look, getting formal qualifications didn't bind me. They did make me probably more confident in when I'm engaged in dealing with people in particular forums or events, you know, like where I work now, if I didn't have teaching qualifications, I would be utterly uh, redundant. I wouldn't be taken seriously at all. I can be where I am now in Sydney Catholic Schools office. I can visit schools and present to staff meetings and at retreats and run pilgrimages and speak at conferences and events because I have formal qualifications. So the formal qualifications, I don't think bound me. They didn't bind me in my personal style of teaching. I still teach the way I want to teach. They actually opened doors for me, doors of credibility in the minds of other people because in my mid fifties now, I have a certain level of experience and seniority and young teachers are up and coming and there's a lot of good young teachers who are up and coming with a, a good spirit, positive spirit and they're ones I'm targeting and trying to encourage and you know, look to the future about leadership in our schools. To young people, when they see someone like myself who's 25, 30 years more experienced than them, they take me seriously because I do have qualifications. Right. Yeah. So if you were to go back in time and look at history and specifically how you ended up in the teaching role, could you tell us that story? Yeah, I think it's one of my favourite stories. Um, as a 16-year-old, I decided I wanted to be a barrister, particularly a criminal law barrister. And so I entered law school after year 12 at the age of 17. And I the first three years of my law school was just like any normal student. But in fourth year, right near the end of fourth year, just about five and a half weeks before I was meant to finish my last exams, I came down with a depression. And that depression 
depression debilitated me for years. I did not finish my law degree until three and a half years later, three and a half years after my original scheduled time. In that three and a half years, from the age of 21 to 25, my life changed profoundly. I was always religious, but my faith went to new levels because of associations with good Catholics that I'd met at law school, at university, and those associations strengthened. So, And by the age of 25, I was very intense about my faith, but I was still in law. I'd worked in various law jobs, you know, as a, in the Supreme Court for a year as a judge, judge's assistant. I did 15 months with a solicitor and doing conveyancing and debt collection. I did nearly two years at Westpac Banking Corporation and legal services and legal division. Because when I was in legal division, their fifth floor of 228 Pitt Street, that's where the formal cases at Westpac Banking Corporation were, you know, were being involved with in the courts. And I was once given by a barrister a brief. It was a big, big file. You know, it was about that thick. And it was Little Old Lady versus Westpac Banking Corporation. And the barrister said to me, Robert, we want to settle this out of court. Can you study the file and let's make the woman an offer? And about three hours later, he came back to me and he said, well, what do you think, Rob? Look, I was going through the the file one page at a time. And actually, when I when I was studying it, my heart turned towards the woman. I was on her side. And I felt sorry for her, but I'm paid to represent Westpac Banking Corporation. And when the barrister asked me that question, I said, well, let's offer her 80,000. The barrister said to me very politely, oh, Robert, we don't normally start that high, which meant in my mind, in hindsight, either you don't know what you're talking about. And that was pretty close to the mark. Yeah. I didn't know what I was really talking about. But you know, whose side are you on? Well, I can answer the second question very easily. I was on the side of the woman. But in that moment, when he said that, I and mean, he was a gentleman when he said that, I said in my heart, I'm not giving myself to the kingdom of Westpac, but I didn't know what it was. I just knew at that moment as a 25 year old that the rest of my life was not gonna be working for Westpac Banking Corporation. That same week I got sick. It was the onset of another depression. And uh, I took, I went to confession at, at the cathedral the priest said something which was very powerful. I wasn't ready to hear it that moment, but what he said was correct and true. And I went home. I, I was away from work for three days. And in that three days, I went down to my parish here at St. Charles and I went to visit the head of the monastery. And I got to chatting with him about a few issues religious. And then I asked him this question, look, Father, I've finished my law degree. I've lost interest in law. I don't really want to continue working in law. Have you got anything for me to do here? And he offered me a job in the school. At that time in 1989, August 89, St. Charles only was up to year seven, K to seven. And I never even gave the school a thought. I never had any desire to be a teacher or anything like that. But when he offered me that job, something just lit in my heart. And I just said, yeah, you know, wow, that sounds exciting. I want to do that. That'd be great. And a couple of days later, I was introduced to the college principal, who then again, a few days later, introduced me to the school executive, not for a job interview, but just to tell the executive who I was and what I was about. And the principal at the time, Father George, said, Robert, I want you to start teaching straight away in 1990. You're going to do year seven and eight history, geography and religion. You get a dip ed and you'll be fine. I didn't want to go back to uni. It took me 12 years to get that dip ed. But that's how I became a teacher. And from that moment, I, in August 89, I went back to work. I resigned on the spot, but I still had five months in my job. I gave them five months notice before I was to start in the following year in early February. I couldn't wait for those five months to come to pass. I actually felt a little bit 
ill, you know, just overexcited about finishing those days to start at St. Charles. And I never forget my first day at St. Charles. It seems like the other day, just the other day, but I've loved every minute of it. And I made the right decision in my life and I've no regrets whatsoever. And if I do all, if I was to do it all over again, I would. There are a few things that you mentioned, which I, I'd like to ask you about. You said that when you were flipping through the case file for the little old lady mm. um, against Westpac, that you were inclined to side with the little old lady. Mm. Would it be fair to say that, in actual fact, you weren't siding with the little old lady, but you were actually siding with the truth? Yeah, that's right. That's correct. You'd agree with that? Yeah, I agree. Yeah, she had a case. The bank knew that. That's why they wanted to settle it out of court, right? Yeah. And do you feel that that was the flavour of your role, despite that case being presented in front of you? Do you feel that there were other instances like it, perhaps not as extreme, which no, were... I, to be honest, that was the only case that was like that. But my overall experience at that level um, in Westpac Banking Corporation Legal Division was that I was bored to death. Mm. In legal services, it was a lot of fun. It was a property boom at the time, and we were dealing with all the instruments relating to mortgages and certificates of title and transfers, and they were coming in. It was a deluge of them. It was a lot of fun doing with that type of work. I enjoyed conveyancing. When I was working with a solicitor, I was doing a lot of conveyancing. So when I was at Westpac Legal Services, that was the type of job I was doing. So I was involved with you know, mortgages and the mortgage instruments being registered on certificates of title with the you know, transfer documents. It was a lot of fun. I, I loved it. It was okay being there. When I went up to legal division, that's when it became very anemic, um, very, very dry. Mm. And I think this is how God prepared me. God took away my love for the legal world, not because there was anything wrong with it. We need lawyers. We need great lawyers. We need very good men and women who are Catholic to be lawyers for obvious reasons. And if anyone's listening to this and aspiring to law, I would say, well, go for it. But he called me out of that because he wanted me to do something else that was positive and that was teaching. And the way he prepared me was to firstly take away any interest anymore in law. And I went through that for a little while. I knew what I did not want to be. Mm. but I did not know what I would be. But that came very quickly, and I have a lot to thank to God for that because when I had no plans to be a teacher, and suddenly I'm offered a job to be a teacher, and um, it happened. And as soon as it happened, the spark lit in my heart, and that was it. As I said already, there's no turning back from there. Would it be fair to say that the love that God took away for law from you was encompassing the depression that you experienced? Uh, I think the depressions, I've had four major depressions in my life in when I was 15, 21, 25 and 30. So I was a post-pubescent experience. And two of those were very severe. I was hospitalised and I was very ill. And uh, you're hospitalised not because you enjoy hospital food, but because <laughs> I, I self-admitted myself because I knew I was in danger of harming myself or others. Um, because that's the effect that depression can have on you. It affects your judgment. Uh, but I look in hindsight and I say, well, the depressions were one means through which God impacted on my life to change the course course of the river of my life. My life was going in a certain direction where I wanted it to go, which was law. But I think God, I have this proneness to depression. I know why. And it's, you know, it's serotonin deficiencies and things like that. So I've managed it very well, thanks God, for 25 years without any recurrence of a major episode. But in hindsight, I have no doubt. You know, what happened to me when I was 21, 
to buckle my studies at law school, what happened to me when I was 25 that accelerated my leaving the law world to St. Charles? And then what happened when I was 30 in my fifth year as teaching, when I was aspiring to leave teaching and I fell into a depression? That's how God spoke to me to tell me what he wanted me to do, what he did not want me to do, and where I was meant to stay. Because when I was 30, I was aspiring to perhaps considering religious life or priestly life, and I was taking steps in that direction. I had a very serious depression. And and I look back on it and I see, well, that's how God spoke to me. He did not want me to pursue that road, even though it's a wonderful road and it's a magnificent thing to be a religious or a priest. He was just saying to me, no, that's not what I want for you, Rob. I put you at St. Charles. I put you into teaching. That's where I want you to stay. And that's why the depression, when I was 30 in particular, just ruined all my plans for leaving St. Charles and, and becoming a religious or a priest. Ruined all those plans. And I, and I say, thank you thanks God in hindsight, because it kept me where God wanted me to be, which was in teaching. So these um, bouts of depression that you had seemed to have really gripped you and almost paralysed you. Mm. How did your family take it? At first, when I was 15, no one understood what the, what it was. I um, thought it was just thing. I mean, I, I was scared to talk to my parents about it. My dad wouldn't have understood. I spoke mostly to my mother about it. I didn't realise at the time what was the background to it. Even the doctors didn't. The doctors, I saw doctors at Banks House, at Bankstown Hospital, at Westmead Hospital. They thought I was either crazy or making it up. But what it was in hindsight, because the science here in this area has developed a lot over the last 40 years. I had what was called OCD-induced anxiety and depression. So coupled with that, I have obsessional thinking, and that's what was leading me towards depression. That first episode in 1979, I was only saved, not by the doctors. I was saved by something my mother said, uh, which triggered me a, a process of thinking that enabled me to recover. The second depression was caused by, my again, my OCD and obsessional thinking impacting on the way I studied. So I could not go to face exams anymore unless I had memorised every note word for word. And some exam notes were up to 600 pages. And this was driving me batty. And if I couldn't achieve that, I'd fall into depression and I couldn't face exams. That's why I dropped out of law school. I only got through law school in the end because they had open book exams. So I didn't need to study in that manner where I had to memorise everything in advance. The the, the depression when I was 25, my third depression, was what moved me from Westpac, got me out of that, that my workplace that day and sent me back and sent me to St. Charles to have that conversation with that priest who offered me the job. And the depression there related to scrupulosity. It's a spiritual condition, but the scrupulosity, the root for my scrupulosity, again, was obsessional thinking. And uh, people who are OCD tend to want to be perfect. And if you can't control that, it becomes, you, you go off on all sorts of tangents and become imbalanced and, and that's the road I went down then. The, the last depression, again, was obsessional thinking but about my vocation, whether I should be a priest or a religious, whether I should leave education. And that drove me out of St. Charles for six weeks and hospitalised. The best thing about my last depression is that I actually was finally diagnosed by a good Catholic psychiatrist. And that Catholic psychiatrist, one, took me seriously, did not believe I was making it up, and understood the importance of prayer, etc., in dealing with these conditions. Once he informed me what was the background to my condition, then I began to 
are. That was the first step to managing it, to conquering it, not to be afraid of it anymore. So I still have these conditions. I still have OCD, obsessional thinking, anxiety issues, obsessional thoughts. I still have all of them, but it's all regulated. It's all under control. My life is normal because I understand these issues and I'm not afraid of them anymore. So when I go through little moments, maybe on a daily basis, it's just like the cloud covering the sun for a few minutes. I know it's a cloud. I know it's going to pass and I know I'm going to walk through it. I think one of the best outcomes from all this is that I can speak about it freely and help other people. But the other thing is that that's why I became a writer because in my fourth depression in 1994 at the age of 30, one of the things that helped me to recover, and it took me about 18 months to recover, was to get the focus off myself. I'm thinking about myself and what I should do in life and actually start writing. So what I did, I got my teaching notes for all my religion classes, year seven to 12, and I began to type them up. I began to improve them. I began to put quotes from church fathers and the catechism, and they became the remote foundation for what became my books. So some of my books that I've written were actually first my lessons at St. Charles that then became books. And writing actually was very therapeutic. Writing helped me recover. Firstly, they gave me a new, a more sharper focus on, on what I should do in life. Part of my teaching will involve writing books. And eventually that would be able to, you know, produce those books and numbers to help other people, young adults outside of school, outside of teaching. More than any medication, was the recovery from these conditions were writing books, but also getting back on my feet with my spiritual life. I know as a fact that I tracked down psychologically when my spirituality went down a bit. I recovered when my spirituality stabilized. I see a very strong link between prayer, sacraments, fasting and penance, and good mental health. And a problem that we have in society today with so many young people. As each generation of young people are becoming more and more agnostic, more and more atheist, more disconnected from God, church, prayer, sacraments, self-discipline, we're only gonna see an increase of, of mental health issues. It's just a natural consequence. We're wounded beings, and if we don't have God's grace to help heal those wounds, we're gonna be wounded people in our lives. And every time I hear or encounter more and more data about young people increasing mental health issues, I'm not surprised. The more we detach ourselves from God, the more we're going to have of these kinds of problems. So in a nutshell, it's basically a no-brainer that the spirit is very much guiding our health. Absolutely. When you're in good spiritual condition, you're in a state of grace. That's God living in us, okay? If you love me, my Father will love you and we will come and make our home in you. That's what Jesus says in John 14, verse 23. That's the state of grace. When you're in grace, it's not just something you know, in your soul. It's something that's, of course, habitual in your soul, but overflows into your body, overflows into your whole person. So God's grace is healing. It actually heals how you think, your mental processes. It, it assists you there. And, and I've experienced that. I don't know what the textbooks say. I don't know what the experts say. I'm just telling you from my own experience. Mental health issues for me, how well I'm tracking there, correlates with how well I'm tracking in my spiritual life. If I'm strong in my spiritual life. I'm strong psychologically. There's no doubt about it. Do you feel that within, let's say, for example, um, the Lebanese culture, um, and we'll talk specifically about our community here in Sydney, do you feel that um, mental health is something that really is still taboo? Absolutely. And that's part of the problem because, and that's why I like to talk about it and why I'm not embarrassed about it. Firstly, 
I don't particularly care what other people might think of me with regards to mental health issues. As Catholics, as Christians, we're supposed to have a look at our neighbour and have compassion and mercy and love. If someone looks at me and says, Haddad's a, a, a nutcase, I'm sorry, that's their, they've got the problem, not me. It's important to be able to speak about because if we're enclosed on ourselves, that's contributing to our downfall. Because I remember very well, when I'm in the deepest of my depressions, I feel like I'm in a, an, in a hole and everything's black. No matter where you look, front, back, left, right, up, down, everything looks black. It looks like you've got no hope. You're in incredible pain and you tend towards self-harm and suicide because that's the only road you see to escape from the pain. So if you're able to talk to someone about it, that's one way of getting out of that black hole because that black hole is a lie. That tells you that there's no solution and that your solution is suicide. That's the lie. So see, you need, if you've got these issues, don't be embarrassed about it. Put yourself in trustworthy hands, people who know you, who love you, who care for you. And that includes experts who'll be able to, you know, take you on board and get you through this very dark time. Now, these dark holes are meant to be only transitional. They're not meant to be permanent. But if we don't know that they're transitional, we think they're permanent, we think there's no solution, therefore we harm ourselves. But if we can put ourselves and trust other people, that's why I self-admitted myself in hospital to get myself out of my own hand and to put myself in other people's hands and then be able to begin a long process of recovery. Uh, but we do need to have the confidence to talk to people about it, but not just anybody, but people who love you and have got the expertise to, to help you. If you were to talk to your 30-year-old self, what advice would you give? Never stop praying. Never go one day without prayer. And Always don't presume that your plans are God's plans. Subject all your ideas and plans about yourself to God and let God guide you day by day. My biggest problem at the age of 30 was I was overly worried about the future. Don't worry about the future. To plan your life, your future, one day at a time, and you live out today. What are you meant to do today? You do great things for God today if what you've got to do today you do well. That's it. And that's how your life opens up. So my, again, a big problem, 30, vocations, what should I be? I'm thinking about the future. But we're, me we're meant to focus on the now. The future doesn't exist yet. What exists is the now. Do the now well for God and you're on the track. You're on the right track. Do you feel that the sacraments that offered by the Catholic Church, the only things that can help or sorry, are the only things that helped you during your experiences? Or were there other things that were so uh, pragmatic, so to speak? Yeah, well, look, it was a combination of things. I tell you what didn't work, Prozac. Some of these antidepressants had no impact on me whatsoever. They were like eating lollies, had zero impact. One piece of medication that did work was Ligactyl. Ligactyl is a sleeping drug because I, I couldn't sleep. I was going to bed at 11 at night and waking up one in the morning. I was getting two hours of sleep a night. I lost all my appetite. I couldn't taste my food. I'd lost enormous amounts of weight. I went down the night. 94 kilos. At the moment, I'm tracking at 108. So, you know, I lost a lot of weight. I'm not saying be anti-medication here, not at all. I'm only speaking from my own experience. But what helped me was the advice of a very good Catholic psychiatrist. It taught me understand the condition and understanding brings relief. It gives you a power not to be afraid of this condition, that it not necessarily will overwhelm you. You can beat it. So the advice of an expert from a Catholic background was certainly very helpful. The medication to help me sleep, to begin a normal life again, was very helpful. The antidepressants were not. What 
got me back on my own two feet to climb out of the depression was to have a re-envisaging or rediscovery of the purpose in my life, to be happy again that I'm a teacher and to dedicate myself to that, not to daydream about being something else in my life. So keep up the daily prayer, keep up the penance, you know, the fasting and the abstinence and go to the Eucharist, go to the sacrament of reconciliation, confession, etc., and make get those graces we need to walk the daily journey. That's how I climbed out of the depression. Do you feel that aspirations and daydreaming are two different things? They can be the same thing, but they can't be delusional. You've got to have aspirations. Some of those aspirations you have could be inspired by God. He puts the thoughts into your head. He's beginning the process of warming, of informing you and warming your heart. So you say yes to the aspiration. We're entitled to have aspirations. Uh, We're entitled to dream about the future. And you put it to God one day at a time in prayer and see how the doors open up. Of course, you've got to work with God's grace to make things happen. You know, you might have heard this conversation before. Things don't just happen. Oh, I'm going to be a priest one day. That doesn't just happen. I'm going to be a teacher one day. That doesn't just happen. I'm going to get married one day. That doesn't just happen. You've got to make it happen. You've got to work with the suggestion that God gives you and to go take the steps necessary to make that happen. So I would probably summarise that as you've taken the responsibility of the awareness you've been given in that you're aware that this is how things are and then you've taken that responsibility to say, if that is what is meant to be for me, I'm going to do everything I can to fulfil it. Yeah, that's true. True. Self-awareness is very important. I'm aware now of my weaknesses. I'm aware of my strengths. I'm aware of my gifts. I'm aware of what I've been called to. I have no interest now in leaving education. As long as, if I, as long as I've committed myself there and the rest of my professional days in education, I'm at peace. I'm aware that's what God wanted me to do. And if I keep working on that path, I will be happy. I will be fulfilled. That's my road to heaven. Okay. And the fact about being aware of your weaknesses is a great advantage. And it doesn't matter if you've got weaknesses, because everyone does. If someone out there who says, I don't have weaknesses, well, they're not being honest. We all have weaknesses and we just, we embrace it. We're not ashamed of it. And we say to ourselves, well, how can I overcome? How can, how can I triumph over these weaknesses? How can I be the person God wants me to be? How can I be the greatest man, husband, father, teacher, evangelist, apologist, writer? How can I be the best that I can be and work with God to climb that ladder and to achieve it. Not out of, uh, you know, excessive pride or over ambition, but I want to be what God wants me to be. You know, or as St. Catherine of Siena said, you know, how do we set the world on fire? If we become the people God wants us to be, we will set the world on fire. And that was the gospel I heard today in Mass from Luke, you know. So, yeah, well... What would you like the impact of your work to be, especially on young people? I want them to know the truth, to love the truth and to live the truth. And that means knowing God, knowing Jesus Christ, having friendship with them, an authentic religious life, a life of integrity, a life of holiness, a life of the Ten Commandments, the Beatitudes, a life of faith, hope and love, and to be apostles to other people, to rebuild the world. The world is dying. The world's going down a path of self-suicide. The world is going to oblivion. There's no hope for it. The only hope and the hope for the future is the hope of, uh, of staying faithful to God 
and in the midst of the darkness, shine the lights. Don't just curse the darkness. That doesn't achieve anything. Well, it's good that you know that the darkness deserves to be cursed. That's at least something, but that doesn't build anything. So I want, if I have any influence over young people, is to inspire them to be those lights in the modern world. If you could change anything in the world, what would it be? Oh, I'd change a lot of governments for a start. <laughs> um, but, uh, well, we have to change ourselves first to change the world, you know, as even non-Catholics, non-Christians have said, you know, you must embody in yourself what you want the world to be. So if we change ourselves first, we're on the road to changing the world. Yes, we can change a lot of governments. There are a lot of problems in the church I would like to see changed. I work in a world of education, very senior bureaucrats. There needs to be more faith, hope and love there. There needs to be less bureaucracy. There needs to be less formalism, less professionalism. What I mean by that, these things are important, but they become the primary things. And I want to mix with these people and I want to see among all that, the formalism, the bureaucracy, you know, the professionalism. I want to see where is the heart, where is the love, you know, faith, hope and love. I, that's what I want to see in everyone in the classroom in, involved in Catholic education, everywhere in the world, at whatever level, they need to be people of faith, hope and love with a passion and enthusiasm and to impart that to be true witnesses to everyone in that classroom rather than just being some perfunctory exercise where they're going through the motions, teaching lessons without passion or enthusiasm, without being zealous, without being inspirational, you know, without inspiring people to convert. We want to help assist people to convert. We want to change the world. We need to convert. Do you feel that as well as having people convert, you want them to convert and act as well? I, I Personally, I think that conversion is one thing, but then acting upon that conversion is something else. Do you agree? Absolutely. The, the acting is being what God has called you to be. What did he create you to be? What does he want you to be? And acting in, in that role. You know, God's called is calling people to be great doctors. And great. And in the context of that, if I'm a doctor, a great defender of life from conception to natural death. God's calling some people to be great lawyers. So we need to be people of, of truth to defend the truth. God's calling people to be great scientists, to learn more about the nature that God has created and to merge faith and reason and to end this a pseudo war between religion and science, because that's a false dichotomy, a false war. God's calling so many people to be into marriage and to be faithful in marriage and fruitful in marriage and raise their children for God, because marriage is an enormous crisis in the world today. More young people are not marrying than marrying. And those who are marrying, are they faithful in marriage? Are they staying married? Are they open to life in marriage? This is a huge crisis. So acting, yes. Find out from God, what do you want me to do in life? What have you created me for? And you know that in your heart. You're not going to hear sounds, voices. You're, gonna get, you're not going to get visions, apparitions, you know, sky riding in the sky. Whatnot. You're going to hear it gently in the heart. That's where you're going to hear God speaking to you. What am I meant to do? What am I meant to act as? You're attracted to it in the heart. You say yes in the will. Okay. And, and we have to... If everyone fulfills their calling, wow, what a revolution. That's the revolution that should be happening in the world. So final question for you. What do you see as the greatest hope that young people have today? 
Well, the greatest hope, and they don't know they have the, this hope. Most young people don't know what the greatest hope in the world is. The greatest hope is the same hope we've had for the last 2,000 years. The fact that Jesus Christ is alive, risen from the dead, is alive today. He won that victory at Mount Calvary and, and at the resurrection. They can't be taken away. This is people's greatest hope. The big problem is how many people know that? And how many people who have heard of the name of Jesus Christ really have a friendship with him, a love? You can call it personal relationship. It doesn't matter. Do they know him and embrace him as Lord, Savior, friend, and have that intimacy, conversational intimacy with him, as well as all the formal prayers and the liturgy and all that and the sacraments, all that together. That's their greatest hope. And as educators, we need to inform the next generations that this hope still exists. Robert, thank you very much for your time. You're welcome. It's a pleasure. Thanks, Paul. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Conqueror's Forge podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit www.conquerorsforge.com.